chapter 10. We come to Mark 10 this morning as we continue all through uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark. I should be in Mark 10 the rest of this calendar year, 2016. And, uh, and Lord willing, we will uh, pick up chapter 11, triumphal entry. Jesus entered Jerusalem for his week of passion in February and walk through that week of passion from February all the way through Easter Sunday. Be yeah, an exciting time for us in the late winter and early spring. Chapter 10 is a beautiful chapter that focuses our attention squarely on discipleship. As we've mentioned before, there's a, a shift in the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 8. Jesus moves from going throughout all these distant lands, uh, traveling many, many miles, and, and spreading the Gospel, the good news of his kingdom, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well, to show that his Gospel is for all peoples to turning his attention squarely to Jerusalem, turning from spreading the gospel as far as he, as he possibly can to turning to Jerusalem, heading to Jerusalem for the week of the Passion, focusing his attention instead of on all these people that he's discipling to his primary closest disciples, revealing himself to them and teaching hard things to them that would be necessary for their formation as his followers, whether it was the transfiguration or teaching them what it means to be great uh, in, in his kingdom, which means be humble, and uh, even later on what it means to die as we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. In chapter 10, we'll walk through some of these things. What is a disciple of Jesus and their relationship to children like? What is a disciple of Jesus and their relationship to money and possessions look like, and even in death? But today we begin with marriage. What is distinct about Jesus and his view of marriage? And thus, what is distinct about us as disciples of Jesus and our view of marriage? In the time that I've been a pastor of a local church, there might be no more difficult issue to deal with than marriage and divorce. Um, sometimes it takes, um, or it looks like a young couple trying to help them navigate through discernment about if God's calling them to be married or not. And, you know, we jokingly say as, as pastors when we sit down with the young couple, like, we're trying to break you up in premarital counseling because if we can break you up, then you don't need to be together. Um, but there's some truth to that because we'd rather save you from future deep, hard pain than, than um, the temporary pain of, of losing an engagement or relationship before you're married. Or it might be counseling married couples through cycles of conflict and sin counseling one party about if they should seek divorce or reconciliation and remarriage, working with couples dealing with adultery. And now we add to this in our culture, navigating the issue of same-sex relationships. And how do we declare clear biblical truth and still love people who are most offended by that truth? Specifically, this issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is one of the most difficult because we have people that we respect all over the spectrum on this issue. What constitutes biblical marriage? When should someone be allowed to remarry if they've had a biblical divorce? Or uh, what, what constitutes a biblical divorce, rather? If someone should be allowed to remarry if they've gone through a biblical divorce, or if they haven't gone through a biblical divorce. There's no way to possibly handle all that in one text and one sermon. Uh, back when they stir up more confusion or questions if we try to. But you know that we're available. You know that the body of believers is available to you if you have more questions and so let's continue this conversation after this morning. I also want to be very sensitive to anyone and everyone who has walked and is walking through the brokenness that is divorce. I've heard it said that divorce is, is worse than death. One writer put it like this, death is a, a, uh, death is a clean pain while divorce is a 
dirty pain. Increasingly, it's becoming less and less possible to find people who haven't been directly affected by divorce or don't have people very close to you who have been affected by divorce. And so just know that because of Jesus Christ and his gospel, there are no guilt trips. There is no shame here this morning. There is grace. There is love. We weep, we grieve, and we bear this burden with you as much as we possibly plan and can. We point you and each other to the grace and sufficiency of Jesus. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Father, we're grateful for your word. Even when it gives us hard truth, heavy truth, deals with hard and heavy issues, we are in fact more grateful for your word. We thank you that you're not silent about these things. You speak. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and open our minds and our eyes and our hearts to see and believe and receive whatever you have for us. Father, I pray your Spirit would speak clearly and powerfully to every part in this room. It's a call to salvation. It's a call to repent of sin. It's a call to believe and be encouraged by your grace, mercy, and love. Whatever way we need to respond, Holy Spirit, make it happen for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the text, let's look at what it's saying. Jesus is traveling from Capernaum down to Jerusalem, getting closer to Judea, beyond the Jordan, a region known as Perea. Jesus is approached by a Pharisee who had a question, not because he was ignorant or curious. He had a question because he wanted to test Jesus, trap Jesus. So, so he says... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now Matthew's account of this and the parallel account, Matthew 19, is more explicit where Mark is implying something. Matthew 19.3 says, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to leave that part out for any cause. But we know it's implied because we know it was okay to divorce one's wife in Jewish law. And so what they're really asking is, can we divorce our wife for any reason? That's what they wanted to know. Trying to trap Jesus. Jesus being in the region of Perea, the region of Herod Antipas, who imprisoned John the Baptist for his criticism of his marriage. Maybe Jesus will make the same mistake. Maybe we'll get rid of him like that. They probably had other motivations we'll get into in a bit. But Jesus asked, well, what did Moses command? And they give him their basic understanding of Deuteronomy 24. And then Jesus responds by walking them all the way back to creation. 
So let's do that as well. Let's go back to creation and deal with these primary two Old Testament texts that form the foundation of this conversation. You can, you can turn there or I'll put them on the screen. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have creation. And after God creates all things, all things are good except one thing. Genesis 2, 18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so in that account, Genesis 2, God brings all the animals before Adam for two reasons. One, to show the authority of man over creation. But second, to show Adam that he is all alone. And among all the animals, there is not a helper suitable for him. Man's best friend is not enough. Alright? We need something more than that. And so in chapter 2, verse 21, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it to a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is, at last, uh, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. God creates Eve, and she is perfect for him, and suitable for him, and the exact helper and companion that Adam needed. This is God's creative ordination of marriage. This is God's perfect picture of how we best live. One man, one woman, one flesh union and covenant. There's no hint of divorce. There's no hint of the, uh, separation at all in God's creative order. The problem is in establishing marriage, and this shows up in Genesis 3, God is putting together two sinners. And that's the problem in marriage. You can psychoanalyze it all you want. You can talk about insecurity issues. You can talk about daddy issues. You can talk about defense mechanisms. However you want to label it, essentially it comes down to two sinners are married to each other and sinners are going to sin. And you're going to sin against each other. That's what sinners do. And that's what causes the problems in our marriages. So by Deuteronomy chapter 24, by the time of Moses, the Israelites going into the promised land, divorce, the desire to divorce has become an issue. And so God begins to put into place a, some system of checks and balances to maintain order, to care for all people, especially women, in a culture that begins to see men casting out women and divorcing them. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. This is a passage that's being referred to when they talk about this certificate of divorce. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house and she goes and becomes another man's wife. And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, that would be the second man, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, the first husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, the ESV translation shows this really well. That is one sentence in the Old Testament language. There's only one verb. Verse 4. And you shall not bring sin upon the land. And so what you have is a law set up to prohibit just one kind of remarriage. If a woman is divorced by her first husband because of some indecency, is sent away and she marries again, and is either divorced by him or he dies, she cannot go back and marry her first husband. That's all that passage is about. 
But this passage, this idea of certificate of divorce, by the time of Jesus, had been taken by the Jewish religious leaders and abused and used as permission or command to divorce for any and every reason that they desired. Or explicitly to command people to divorce people who committed adultery. As we'll see. In fact, three things about this passage. Number one, divorce is being controlled here. A woman can only be divorced if there's some indecency in her. This is not the concept that's become law in our country in the 70s, no-fault divorce. There's nobody's fault, just you're incompatible, so everybody separate. Go to their own separate houses and separate rooms. You can no longer be together. That's, that's not at all found anywhere in Scripture. This is only in the case of some indecency. Now, a lot of debate about what that word means. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament, and it actually refers to human excrement. So whatever this indecency is, it is some kind of gross, shameful behavior on the part of the woman. It does not refer to adultery. How do we know? Because the Old Testament law deals with adultery in other places where both the man and the woman are to be taken and stoned. This is something else, some kind of sexual indecency. Now, by Jesus' day, the right to carry out capital punishment was taken from the Jews, only the Romans could kill. And so they could no longer stone for adultery, so they began to allow for divorce for adultery. Couldn't kill them anymore, so we'll allow them to separate and divorce. Secondly, this whole law was written to protect the women. They had no protection. The women could not divorce. This was only the choice of men. And so it was done so that they would have this piece of paper or piece of something, a certificate of divorce, and people would know they were free to remarry. In fact, you can read some historical records of these certificates of divorce that would say things like, she was faithful and is free to remarry. Only the men could divorce. The women had no protection, and this gave them some protection in that society. And then thirdly, this speaks to the solemnity and permanence of marriage. You just can't run in and out of marriage among God's people. You can't have marriages like you have dresses or pairs of shoes in your closet or sets of golf clubs. You, you, you have one marriage that God has ordained you for. So in some ways it was limiting divorce and remarriage, which was badly needed in that culture by then. So fast forward to Jesus' day. So going back from Deuteronomy 24 to, to Mark chapter 10. By Jesus' day, there were basically two schools of thought on the subject of divorce. There were two rabbis over the years who had taken two opposing positions. These men weren't living when Jesus was, was alive and teaching uh, in his gospel ministry, but they would always refer back to these rabbis who had lived years before. One school was very conservative, the school of Shammai, of the rabbi Shammai. This rabbi interpreted some indecency to refer only to sexual misconduct, so that's the only reason somebody could divorce. But there, if there was sexual misconduct, you had to divorce. The other school, Hillel, was very liberal. They interpreted some indecency to basically include anything and everything. It was no-fault divorce. So if a woman burned some food, she could be divorced. If the wife was caught talking to another man in public, she could be divorced. If her husband simply found another woman more attractive, she could be divorced. All of that was okay in the school of Hillel. Now what both schools of thought did agree on was in the case of adultery, divorce was not only expected, but commanded and encouraged. In this passage in Mark, along with the parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew 19, you get the fullest teaching of Jesus on marriage and divorce. The Pharisees are basically asking Jesus, 
What school of rabbis are you a part of? Are you in Hillel or Shaman? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus, are you in the school of Hillel? And Jesus responds, as always, in brilliance. He doesn't directly answer the question, but he takes them back to creation. You can't put me in one of your boxes of expectation, Jesus says. I'm going to take you all the way back to what God intended in marriage. And this is what I want to make sure you get this morning. When we talk about a subject like this, it's only natural for our mind to begin thinking about exceptions and rules. Is it okay here? Is it okay there? Is remarriage okay here? Is remarriage okay there? But our focus should be squarely on the sanctity and the permanence of marriage. Even stronger in the Gospel of Mark and in Matthew, because Mark doesn't include the exception clause. He wants our focus not on what to do when marriage is broken, but what does God intend in marriage for a disciple of Jesus Christ? One author put it like this, you don't learn to fly by learning what to do when the plane crashes. You don't train for war by training how to retreat and quit. To see marriage in light of being a disciple of Jesus, you have to get to the heart of what God intends in marriage. And this is what God intends. This is what God wants. You can't look at all the expect, uh, exceptions and what happens when divorce happens or remarriage needs to happen. You can't look at all of that without fully grasping God's created order. One flesh, one union, one man, one woman for life. This is what God desires. This is what God created in marriage. Pharisees had misconstrued Moses' law in Deuteronomy 24 and made it to a command, which was never what God intended. God made an allowance, Jesus says, for our hard hearts, but he never commands divorce. And even though Jesus gives the exception clause in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, except in sexual morality, his emphasis is still on permanence and the sanctity of marriage. So how does what Jesus is saying here in this passage show the distinction between the culture of that day and a disciple of Jesus? In other words, the presence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four ways. Number one, Jesus sided with the conservative Shammai school in a way, but not totally. But he completely dismisses the Hillel school of unbelief. No fault, frivolous divorce is not okay in God's eyes. You cannot claim incompatibility, you're not getting along, or whatever is grounds for divorce. Jesus actually goes further, verse 11 and 12, when he speaks of remarriage, because he says, if you've gotten a divorce for the wrong reason and you remarry, then you commit adultery in verses 11 and 12. So the state may say, yeah, if you get a divorce, you can get remarried, but God's law is above the state law, God says that's not okay. Depends. More on that in a little bit. Secondly, he sided with Shammai school, the conservative school, but not totally because he didn't command or demand divorce. Jesus makes an allowance for divorce, but divorce is never commanded or demanded, even in the case of adultery. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you have options. Repentance, reconciliation, Restoration. The Bible doesn't command you have to get a divorce, even in the case of adultery. Thirdly, Jesus makes the husband responsible. In other words, the husband can receive blame, which nobody 
Nobody did in the first century Jewish culture. Husband was never at fault. You might try, you might try to pull it off in your house. It doesn't work at our house, right? First century, you can pull it off. Because that's how elevated patriarchal society was. Jesus said in verse 11, if a man marries a divorced woman, he, he causes her to commit adultery. It's his fault. Even assigning blame to the woman for causing the man to be an adulterer was an elevation of the status of woman in that culture. Because women weren't assigned that kind of blame. They didn't have enough status or standing in that culture to be given that kind of responsibility. In that culture, men basically had the freedom to do as they pleased, but not in God's culture. Not as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can't do as you Jesus brings that out. In Jewish culture, males dominated females. Women were spoken of mainly in their allegiance to their father when they were young, to their husband when they were married, and to their sons when they were old and their husband was most likely passed on. They weren't given their own status. Jesus acknowledges the divine will of God to create man and woman in his image in this passage. Male and female, he created them. We have different roles, but we're equal in God's image, both given the image of God. Jesus declares that man's obligation to his wife trumps his obligations to his parents. A man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife. So for a man who's married, his obligation to his wife is second only to God. Only to God. And in Jewish culture, man controlled the divorce, and so man was the lord of the relationship. And Jesus here says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Lord, God, is the Lord of our marriages. He has put you together. This is true of all marriages. The Lord has put you together. What God has joined together, let not man separate. It's not the man who is Lord over the relationship. And then, and then lastly, the gospel gives us a righteousness and a desire for righteousness. Gives us a new heart that focuses on the permanence and sanctity of marriage, not exception clauses. In other words, your marriage, something bad happens in your marriage, you're not looking for a way out, you're looking for a way through. That doesn't mean that you won't get to a day where divorce needs to be discussed. Marriages, even Christian marriages, can get to that point. But that's the last possible resort. You are seeking repentance. Reconciliation. You're willing to work through anything and everything. So what about that exception clause? Now it's not mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, but in the parallel passage in Matthew 19, 19.9, it says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now it's implied in Mark. It has to be implied in Mark. Otherwise Jesus would be contradicting himself. Mark 10, you can't get remarried or you're going to commit adultery. In Matthew 19, well, you can't get remarried unless it's for sexual morality, then you're okay. And Jesus doesn't contradict himself because he's God. God can't contradict himself. So for whatever reason, it's implied in the Gospel of Mark, but it's true of Jesus' perspective on marriage. Jesus is giving his interpretation of the indecency of Deuteronomy 24, and he's using the word translated sexual immorality, and the Greek is the word porneia. There is another word in the Greek language for adultery. Jesus doesn't use that word here. He says porneia, we get our word pornography from that, 
It's a broad term of sexual immorality. It refers to all kinds of sexual immorality. It can refer to adultery, premarital sex, prostitution, homosexuality, incest, other things. It refers to a lot of things, but it always refers to sexual immorality. It's a sexual sin. It's a sexual sin that breaks the one flesh covenant of marriage. That's the exception Jesus gives. So Jesus is saying that unless divorce is for porneia, sexual morality, the remarriage, which was always done, you got remarried in the first century Jewish culture. No one stayed single by choice. Remarriage can lead to adultery. The emphasis is still on the permanence and sanctity of marriage because you just can't run in and out of marriages any way you want as a disciple of Jesus. Now notice another thing about verse 11 and 12. Whoever divorces his wife for reasons other than the sexual morality and marries another commits adultery, either him or her, this does not mean perpetual, ongoing adultery to the end of the age. There are some who believe in the church, some churches who have taught that if you get divorced for the wrong reasons and then you get remarried, then you're an adulteress or an adulterer forever. No repentance, no forgiveness. This is your new identity. But we know that's not true in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've already seen in Mark 3.18 that there is forgiveness for all sin. All sin. All sin. There is forgiveness. And nowhere in Scripture will you ever find our merciful, gracious, loving Father turning away someone who's coming for repentance, coming in repentance for forgiveness. Never. He never turns away the repentant, confessing sinner. He forgives. Secondly, the act of adultery is only committed when remarriage follows an unbiblical divorce. So if the divorce was because of porneia, sexual immorality, then you are free to remarry, is what Jesus is saying. There's no adultery. It's only an act of adultery if the divorce was unbiblical and remarriage occurs. So considering all that we've looked at, let me, let me close with a couple things. Uh, I use that term close loosely. Jesus clearly affirms the creation mandate of marriage as one man and one woman for as long as they both show up. That is crystal clear. One of the arguments for same-sex relationships to be given the status of marriage is that Jesus never condemned same-sex relationships. The reason Jesus never spoke directly to this issue is because it wasn't an issue in first century Jewish culture. Homosexual behavior of all sorts of varieties was condemned to sin and would be included under blanket statements about sexual immorality. No one in Jewish culture was advocating for the normalization of same-sex relationships as marriage. They say Jesus today would affirm these relationships because he didn't condemn them back then. But that's committing the logical fallacy of the argument from silence. We as a church in the Crossing Church, we don't have a policy or procedure about smoking weed during the worship gathering. So it's okay to do it then. We haven't said don't do it, so it must be okay to do it. So next Sunday, bring your, bring your weed and we'll smoke, smoke it up during the worship gathering. No, that's ridiculous. Just because we haven't come up with a policy against it doesn't mean we're for it. That's the argument from silence. As we all know, there's, just, there's, there's much more to this issue than just Jesus affirming the biblical creative mandate of our marriage. Of marriage. But that is a strong starting position. The fact that Jesus, Lord of the universe, God in the flesh, affirmed one man, one woman 
for life is a starting position that is very strong. It's a position we have to be clear on as a church because we are increasingly in the minority on this position. And we're going to continue to be in the minority as the laws of our land can increasingly change. The Supreme Court is in direct opposition to this position of Jesus. Our current president and our president-elect are both in opposition to the position of Jesus. We obey God, not men. So no matter what the laws of the land say about this relationship as marriage, we say it's not. We say that with humility and brokenness. Because we're watching people <coughs> suffer from sin, destroy their lives, and now the laws of our land say it's perfectly okay. In fact, churches are saying it's perfectly okay. Here's the stamp of God's approval on you. By God's grace, we as leaders of the Crossing Church will never waver on this issue. We are called to stand for truth and to love all people, including enemies of the gospel, and serve and sacrifice so that all may hear of the gospel of grace. And so we engage the lost in these hard conversations while not changing our position on the clear teachings of Scripture. We will never waver on this issue. We will never waver in our call to love and serve those far from God. Secondly, we see the purpose of marriage as a demonstration of the gospel. There is a Godward orientation to marriage. He created it. He ordained it. He defined it. He established it. It's his idea, marriage. And so it's all about him, not you, not me. So, especially for singles, regardless of age, marriage is not about you finding a soulmate who will complete you. It's not how trying to figure out how, how he or she, what they will look like, how funny or quirky or cute or romantic or talented or beautiful or handsome they will look. Marriage is not about who you can call as husband and wife and who can be on your arm for the next 50 years to make you look good or feel good. Now, God may call you to singleness, but for most of you, He's going to call you to marriage. And His purpose is to put someone in your life who will be part of making you more like Jesus, and together, you display the gospel to the world. That's what He wants. Now, there is a place for physical attraction and compatibility, right? It's not it's like that it doesn't matter at all. I, I gotta go find the person I'm least attracted to, and they make me most miserable. I gotta marry that person because through that relationship I can most demonstrate the gospel. It's not what God's calling us to. Where's my going? God's not calling us to go look for a donor. It happens, but it's very rare. There's a place for that. But the ultimate purpose is not physical attractiveness or compatibility or even your happiness. It's God's purpose to display the gospel through your marriage. This was the Ephesians 5 passage that we read at the beginning. A husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church. And a wife loves and respects and follows the leadership of her husband as the church does with Christ. It's not that the husband is Christ and the wife is the church. Okay, marriage is not the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. Because we do that very imperfectly. I've had people say, well, I'll start submitting to my husband and following his leadership when he starts loving me as Christ loves the church. It doesn't work that way. Alright? 
Both parties begin that process now as you're imperfect because you will always be imperfect. Just as Jesus' statements in Mark 10 didn't fit any schools of thought in that context, so Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 was completely countercultural to that context as well. Husbands did not have to love their wives. They basically owned their wives. Paul was calling husbands to do something that they did not have to do. But if a husband would love his wife as Christ loved the church and serve her and humbly sacrifice for her good, then that would point people to this greater love that's motivating and empowering that and give an opportunity for the gospel in that Greco-Roman city of Ephesus. Wives had to follow the leadership of their husbands. They had no choice. It's not like they could choose. Today I'm going to do my own thing. No, you're going to do what he says because he can boot you out at any time for any reason. So if a wife would choose to respect and honor and follow the leadership of her husband in her heart as unto the Lord, then that would point people to a greater love, a greater submission, a greater uh, ability that comes from something else outside of yourself and would point people to the gospel. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what do our marriages and our relationships as family need to look like that point the city of Monroe to the gospel of Jesus Christ that is only making this possible? And really, what do we have to do? Like, if I just degrade my wife and talk down about her to other dudes, what am I doing that's different than anybody else? Wives, if you just dismiss your husband and talk about him as an idiot around your friends, what are you doing that's not already going on in our city? Like, how do we love and serve each other in such a way that shows only the gospel of Jesus Christ makes this possible? One way is persevering through the hard things of marriage, which could include adultery, which could include other things that are hard to walk through. When Jesus taught this in Matthew 19, what he said was so countercultural and hard. The disciples said at the end of that passage, uh, then it's better not to even get married. <laughs> Jesus, what you're teaching is so hard, let's just stay single. And Jesus goes on to say, well, that might be possible. You might need to do that. For most of us, that's not the call. A healthy marriage that displays the gospel is hard. In fact, it is impossible apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Healthy marriages here today are only healthy and demonstrate the gospel because of Jesus. So worship Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Not how amazing you are. I mean, you're amazing. But Jesus is way more amazing than you. And if you have a healthy marriage, make sure people know it's because of Jesus. Struggling marriages here today, it's not hopeless. You don't have to give up on them. You know who I'm talking about them. Because Jesus is here and the power of the gospel is here to change hearts and help you love and serve one another and walk in forgiveness and repentance. So that you demonstrate the gospel to sinners committed to each other just as Christ is committed to you, a sinner, forever. You are His. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Singles here today, don't worry about your future. If God has called you to singleness, Jesus will be enough. By the way, if God's called you to marriage, Jesus is also enough. 
Because if you're serving your spouse as your Savior, they're going to fail you. And you need to know Jesus is enough. But if you're single and God calls you to that for the rest of your life, Jesus will be enough. If He hasn't, trust your Father. He will order your steps for you to meet someone that you can marry and be a partner with in the gospel. You don't have to stay at night for trying to figure it out. Or, or what are they going to look like? How am I going to meet them? And how's it going to go? Well, everything right. You don't have to worry about all that. Sleep in peace. Your dad is going to take care of you. He's going to provide everything you need to serve him, even if that includes a spouse. Those who bear the scars of divorce as a spouse or as a child, know that Jesus sees, Jesus knows, and Jesus cares. And He Himself, through the body of Christ, through His Spirit, through His Word, is here to heal and bind your wounds and give you a new family called the church who will love you unconditionally, though not perfectly, and walk with you through this the way we live this out can demonstrate to our city the presence and reality of Jesus and the gospel in this body. As husbands and wives, we persevere through sin, even the sin of adultery. We repent and we remain committed to each other. As singles, we see marriage as God's purpose to show the gospel in your life and not just make you happy. And as a church, we bear the burden and the weight of those who bear the scars of divorce. As we partner with and invite into our lives single moms who need so much help. And we do that together as a body of believers. And we become something through which Jesus accomplishes his work and is glorified in our city. Think about how a church made up of couples committed to let their marriages show the righteousness of Jesus and be salt and light. Think about how that would look in our church, in our city. We work together to help each other's marriages last and be vibrant, and we fight for each other's marriages. Yeah. Older couples help mentor younger, younger couples, as Titus 2 talks about. To say, you can make it. Yeah, year one, year three, year five, year seven is rough. But you want to persevere because there are joys and blessings in year 10 and 15 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 that you don't want to miss out on. So stay the course by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When men in the church see a young husband not fulfilling his responsibilities as a husband, and they love him enough to go to him and have that hard conversation, to hold him accountable to what he committed to in front of God to her on that day, even if it risks losing that relationship, we as men go and do it. Because it's worth it. Have a, a body of believers with healthy, vibrant marriages. The same for wives and moms. How can we help you be the godly wife God's created you in Christ Jesus to be? To have joy in your marriage and joy in your parenting. Guys, let's be a church that fights for our marriages. How, whatever God has created, our enemy wants to destroy it. And this is as clear as anything in marriage today. We fight, we love, we pray, we counsel, we grieve, we weep, we carry each other's burdens as we strive to be a body of believers that have healthy marriages. 
We're going to take some time in a few moments to reflect on this and listen to an ancient prayer. And I don't know how the Holy Spirit has spoken to you or is speaking to you, but I pray this morning for the glory of Christ, for the good of you and our body of believers, that you would respond with repentance and If it's salvation you need today, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today you can come to know Jesus. If you need to walk that out, talk that out with somebody, look around the room. You can go to almost anyone in this room, and they will walk you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it's repentance and forgiveness you need because of sins that you've committed against a spouse, then find the free forgiveness, the gracious forgiveness of Jesus Christ today. And then after a time of reflection, I'm going to share this a meal together as we take the bread and dip in the cup and return to our seats. We'll share this meal as one body of believers. If you're a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to share that meal with us. Let's pray. Yeah. Father, we are grateful for the grace of Jesus. Thank you for marriage. Thank you that we get to have spouses. It's so good and so frustrating. And so we thank you for the gospel that cleanses us of our unrighteousness and that the Holy Spirit that empowers repentance and faith and forgiveness. Thank you that we are, aren't what we used to be, but we have not yet arrived, and so there's more growth and more progress for which we will worship you for. Father, I pray for everyone here, whatever state they are in, whatever pain they're struggling with, whatever good things that are happening that need to glorify you for, whatever repentance is needed, that the Holy Spirit come and make it happen for your glory. And then let us worship you in song and prayer and truth. Pray in Jesus' name. I 